What a gorgeous day, isn't it? It's just fantastic and looks like uh, you'll be able to get your leaves taken care of and all that other kind of stuff too, just, just for you, special thing. How much control do you really think you have over your life? I know we like to think we do, and we live and act sometimes like we do, but how much control do you really think we have over the course of events and even in our own homes? So a student asked his spiritual mentor this question, what can I do to be more spiritual? And his spiritual mentor said, well, about as much as you can to make the sun rise in the morning. And the student thought and went, what good are all these spiritual disciplines that I'm building into my life? And the mentor said, to make sure you're awake when the sun does rise in the morning. Would you pray with me before we look into one of the last two messages from the Sermon on the Mount and prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what God's going to share with each of us today. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. You alone are worthy. You are our awesome, holy God. You orchestrate the events in our world. You make people rise. You cause people to fall. And we, your children, look to you as the author and finisher of our faith uh, in Jesus Christ, your, your Son, our Savior. And God, we, we look forward to seeing uh, again and worshiping over this sermon and then applying it by your grace and through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. We can't cause the sun to rise, right? Only God can do that. <laughs> he does it every day. We can't make ourselves more spiritual. Only God can do that. But God has given every one of his children everything they need to be prepared for, to respond accordingly to anything that this life is going to throw at us, to anything we encounter. It doesn't matter how high or how low it is. And, and much of that, how we are to respond, what we are supposed to look like as children of God, we are discovering in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all contained here. So we wait on Jesus, while at the very same time we live for Jesus. And that's the trick. What does our everyday living, as we wait on Jesus Christ's return, because he is coming back, is he not? Yes, he is. That's what I'm looking forward to. Every morning the sun rises, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. What does our everyday living look like as we wait on Jesus' return? Choices. That's what every day is made up out of. Choices. In chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount that we just finished, Jesus described two treasures. You remember that? Um, they're two treasures that every one of us in this room, whether we know Jesus Christ as our Savior or not, we have the opportunity to choose from each and every day. No one is exempt from these two choices. Earthbound treasure or what's the other one? Heavenbound treasure. Exactly. You start, we're starting to get it, aren't we? And often we respond to these two choices through the course of the day. You already have today. I have too. And we do it without even thinking sometimes. I would even much consideration because life just kind of happens, doesn't it? And it just goes along. And Jesus challenges us here in the Sermon on the Mount, I hope, I hope we're getting this, to stop, to just stop. 
to, to think and then to choose wisely, understanding what's at stake with every choice we make. Jesus said last week, when, as Ben was leading us through the first parts of chapter 7, that <clears throat> choosing real treasure, heavenly treasure, means that you won't have any need of worry in your life. Do you remember that? The anxiousness? Why? Because choosing real treasure puts it where? In heaven. And heaven is secure. You see, when you and I worry, which there's been a lot of that this week. (laughs) Everybody seems to be all up in arms. Uh, But when we worry, as children of God, typically we have just chosen some form of earthly treasure to put our hope in, to put our trust in. And our heart which is where God looks, not on the outside, remember. Where God looks, our heart is then set on some kind of earthly comfort or some kind of earthly security. Earthbound treasure fails to deliver every time. When are we going to learn? When are we going to get this? Earthbound people tend to worry a lot. And that's not what you and I are as followers of Jesus Christ. Are we? There's an uncertain nature to every earthbound thing. It's up, it's down, it's sideways. It's twirling around like a tornado. And often earthbound people tend to judge a lot too. Remember that from last week? And last week Jesus called us out. He called us out on judging each other and the things around us improperly. And he did it by giving us the golden rule. Do you remember that? It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish, you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law. This is the prophets. It's a summary statement for the spirit of the entire Old Testament. It's the motto for your life and for my life as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has been building us up. He's been building us up on on how we get to this kind of a place in our life as the day just rolls by. What kind of people are are our neighbors going to see? Our spouse, our kids, our grandkids. What do they see? This place is where you can be free from worry. You will be the calm voice, the calming voice. And you'll be free from judgment. Wow. So this morning as Jesus begins his wrap-up, this week and next week, of the sermon he delivered on that mountain, Jesus is going to share with us some more truth for us to apply as we walk his way. First of all, verse 13 of chapter 7 is where we're going next. There are two gates. Is everybody aware of that? There are two gates. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For the the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Everybody's doing that. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. How do you discover this gate, the one that leads to life? Where is it? How do you get through it? to walk this worry-free, secure path. 
that Jesus offers. Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms of all time. Verse 3 says this, He restores my strength. Who? Who's the he? God. He leads me down what? Oh, here's the paths. He leads me down the right paths. Why? For the sake of his reputation. This is not about us. Again, it's God's doing. He's in charge of it all. And Jesus is later going to add, after the Sermon on the Mount, later in his ministry, John captures it, the Apostle John, in John 14, 6. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he'll put an exclamation point on it right after that by saying, I am the door. I'm the gate. It's all about me. Yes, there are two gates, and one of them is quite natural and easy to find. None of us has any issue here, right? Are you, are you with me? No issues finding the wide gate on your, in your daily walk, even as a child of God. And the other can only be found through Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes this whole idea of, of gates and paths and, and, and how you get there and, and walk on it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not of your own doing. Don't fool yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of anything you've done. It's not a result of works so that not one of us can boast about it. But what are we? Well, we're his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for what? What kind of works? good works. There's a lot of bad works going on today. And some of them are done in the name of Jesus. And God prepared beforehand that you and I should walk in them. There's the path. And the path that we've been seeing is spelled out in great detail in the Sermon on the Mount. From beginning to end, from, from, from initially being drawn to God. Do you remember how God brought you to himself? those of you who know God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you remember how, how that happened? And, and the people and the passages and the courses and experiences of, of life he used to draw you to himself. From, from that very beginning to the end, from God initially drawing us to himself, hearing about the path and, and this gate named Jesus to being freed from the penalty of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ's death payment on the cross, to being enabled to now walk that path, to get through the gate and to start walking in that path through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. It's all about God our Father who is in heaven. Holy is his name. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an inescapable choice that you and I have. It's between the two gates. Why do so many Christians in the world walk like they're going down the wide path? Do you see the absolute nature of the choice before every human being on the planet? It's between two gates. And what is humanity doing about this choice? If you will be perceptive 
and notice what's happening in our world, especially in our own country here. Humanity is gravitating towards fusing all the ways, whatever they might be, into a conglomerate religion. Eliminating the need for choice. Eliminating the need for conflict. Eliminating the need for negativity. But Jesus cuts through all of our easygoing syncretism. Jesus makes no room for human, comfortable solutions. Jesus insists that ultimately there is only one choice because there are only two possibilities to choose from. And he strongly insinuates that you would be a fool to choose the wide path. It's nothing really new. Uh, nothing that the people sitting on the mountainside listening to Jesus' sermon hadn't heard before. The very first psalm, Psalm chapter 1, what does it do? It contrasts the way, the path of the righteous, who delight in God's law, in His Word, who bear fruit and prosper. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount to me. And the way of the wicked, who are driven like the chaff in the wind and are destroyed. Once you choose a gate, and I must ask, have you chosen the gate named Jesus? Have you? Once you have chosen a gate, you'll find a corresponding path. So there are two paths. Only two, unlike our modern times, not many. There's just two. And there's this broad path where there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room for diversity of opinion. There's plenty of room for laxity on morals. Let's not go there, okay? Let's just, it's, it's, it's fine. It's the road of tolerance. It's the road of least resistance. It's a road that has no curbs. No clear boundaries for, for thought or for conduct. Travelers on the broad path follow their own inclinations, which is a telltale sign because... It's the desires of their human heart. In all of its fallenness, in all of its unreliability, you can go off-road anytime you want if you're going down the broad path. You can go four-wheeling. And people who are on the broad path, which are many, often describe what they believe in or what they want to do and the choices they make with a phrase. It's so common. It's... I just feel that, have you heard it? Have you used it? I know I have. I catch myself all the time and go, oh, stop that. It's not about me and my feelings. It's about truth. That's absolute. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, going through the motions. False ambition, all these things on this path, which all of us in this room are susceptible to and do without thought. None of these things has to be learned or cultivated. Do you, you, you realize that? Do, do, do you ever laugh at yourself sometimes? You ever watch a child being told not to put their finger in the electrical plug? You know, don't do that. Stay away from it. Don't even go, don't even go near those things they will look you right in the eye 
as they poke their finger in that electrical plug. They may even smile at you while they disobey. It's like this is some big game they're playing. This is awesome. And you've all seen these kids. Some of you were those kids. Some of you still are those kids. Why do we bother putting little plastic plugs in in electrical outlets? Because we've created boundaries and we know they're going to be crossed. So we build safety nets. It takes me, maybe you can relate with this, it takes me great effort and discipline every day to resist doing as I please. But it takes no effort at all to practice what I please. It's, it's amazing how that works. And that's why the broad road is the easy road. That's why so many will, will, will choose it. That's why we're hearing today, let me live the way I want to live. Don't tell me what to do. Don't make rules. I know better. And I'm right. So just let me do it. But Jesus says that destination is what? Destruction. And you may accumulate a lot of friends on that path, the wide path. You may uh, accumulate a lot of success and uh, worldly wisdom and maybe even a lot of stuff, but that's where it all stays. It doesn't count for anything and you can't take it with you. It stays on the broad path. But on the narrow path, Jesus says it's much harder. So it's a lot harder. There are clearly marked boundaries that make it narrow. And its narrowness is due to something called divine revelation, which every one of us can read today freely, anytime we want. God confines the travelers on the narrow path to, to what he's revealed in his word. Those are our confines. You will stub your toe on the curbs of God's revealed truth. You just will. I will, you will. It imposes a limitation on what you can believe. It imposes a goodness on how you may live and conduct yourself. And that's why the Bible is the first thing to be attacked by people who don't want to follow God's rules. So in a sense, the path's hard, and that's why few choose it. Yet in another sense, as Jesus is going to say later in another message, his hard and narrow way is actually easy and light because it's the way to true freedom. And he describes the burden that he places on people as everlasting life. That's where it takes you. It's the way to life. The destination is life, not destruction. The sun rising every morning reminds me that God is in control. Amen. It's awesome. The sun rising every morning reminds me that God's mercies are new with every sunrise. It reminds me that there is coming a day when all of this mess is going to be made right. It could be today. Are you ready? In the meantime, we get to live. <laughs> we do, and we're supposed to. We're supposed to be the vibrant, penetrating light in this society. 
In the meantime, we get two choices as children of God. You say, well, I already picked the, I already picked the Jesus gate. Yeah, but the Sermon on the Mount exposes some of the fallacies that our modern Christianity carries with it that we pick the Jesus gate, but we don't walk the Jesus path. There's no middle ground. There never has been. Unlike many people think and then live, our fruit will eventually be exposed for what it is. It will be revealed what the actual choices we have made are. Two choices, two destinations, that's it. Regardless of how you want to slice it or manipulate God's Word or play games with God, it's either wide or narrow. That's all you get. And this kind of truth is extremely unpopular today. <laughs> it really is. Uh, because we, and I, and I mean children of God too, we like to be uncommitted, right? I mean, every, even opinion polls that are taken uh, periodically allow not only for a yes and a no, but a I don't know. It's, it's an easy cop-out. People are lovers of mediocrity. And the most popular, although it's always the ever-changing path of our day, is typically found through our media. To, to resist the popular way, to go Jesus' pathway, is to risk being dubbed an extremist or, or even a fanatic. Humans resent being faced with the necessity of a seemingly restrictive choice. What do you mean that that sugar-laden delicacy could be bad for me? Okay, maybe a third or fourth one, but certainly not the first two. Jesus won't allow us to escape making a choice. When you walk God's way, there is danger at every turn. Look how he concludes this section. So now a word on quality control. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. And this is way before Little Red Riding Hood. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Fruit inspecting is such a huge theme. We've seen it already in the Sermon on the Mountain. You've got it through all the rest of the epistles. Peter, John, uh, Paul. But note to self, where does the examining begin? Do you remember where Bed took us last week in the sermon with the beam in the eye? Examination starts with your own life before you start messing with other people. My own fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? All God's people said? No. Are figs gathered from thistles? And I like, I like figs. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Could Jesus have said it enough times? Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you remember um, during the last week of Jesus' um, life before he was crucified for the sins of mankind that last week, he, he had just entered the capital city 
of Israel, Jerusalem, the, tri- the triumphal entry. <clears throat> and the crowds sang and praised his coming while the leaders gnashed their teeth and plotted his arrest and then his death. And during that last week, every night he would leave the city and he, in the evenings and he would go back to Bethany to stay overnight and then he would re- return back to the capital to, to teach in the mornings. And on one of those occasions, he passed by a fig tree. And it drew his attention because at the time of the season, figs weren't coming out yet, but this fig tree was already covered in in leaves. It it had a full covering of leaves, which was very unusual for that time of the season, so it meant it was an early bloomer, and it probably had some nice fresh figs on it. Yum, yum. So with that expectation, Jesus inspects the tree And he's immediately disappointed. It's all leaves, no fruit. It's all expectation, no satisfaction. So Jesus curses the tree and makes it wither from the roots, never to yield fruit again. Jesus, the child welcomer. Jesus, the compassionate healer. Jesus, the the storm calmer, kills a tree. (laughs) So what do we learn from this peculiar living illustration, or should I say dead illustration? It's a sober warning for each one of us today. Fruitlessness leads to judgment. Light bulbs would have immediately gone off in the minds of Jesus' disciples as he reenacted before their eyes the history of Israel's rejection to walk the path of God, to accept the things of God, And so when the disciples ask him to explain what just happened, he pivots and instead starts talking about prayer. Why? Though his disciples don't yet fully understand, they're going to be the true prophets to come. They're going to bring the true message of salvation from God, and they're going to start off as a little Jewish nucleus of Christ followers, and they're going to expand Jesus Christ's church, his actual body on earth, extending the fruit branches worldwide. It's why you and I are even here today. Gentiles, grafted into the nation of Israel. And he's going to bring fruit from all nations, every last one of them. And as Jesus has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, we, his disciples, do this through the power of prayer. We cannot forget this. We cannot neglect this. Faithful prayer. So the fig tree cursing isn't just about historical Israel's rejection of the Messiah. It's about you and I. We, are, we know each other by our fruit. And we know false truth that's swirling all around us by its fruit. And we constantly, urgently, unceasingly pray for discernment to be able to tell the difference. There are false teachers. They've been multiplying since the garden. (laughs) And at the narrow gate, Jesus says he posts a sign. Beware of false prophets. There's no sense in putting a sign on your garden gate saying beware of dog if all you have is a couple cats in the house. They are real. They are vicious. 
and they're in the church in our country. Jesus later describes them as the blind leading the blind. In 1 John, the apostle John, who sat under Jesus' teaching on this mountain, hearing the Sermon on the Mount himself, he described them as being here, as being active, as multiplying, and that's 2,000 years ago. And both John and Paul in their letters describe them as the precursors for the greatest false teacher of all time, the coming Antichrist and his false prophet. These people are here called in the Bible, in the Greek, pseudo-prophets. Prophets presumably because they are claiming divine inspiration from God. I'm hearing a lot of that today. And then later, um, they're going to be called pseudo-apostles because they claim apostolic authority from Jesus himself. But they're all pseudo, which is the Greek word for a lie. You will recognize them by their fruits. Their danger is that they're wolves. And you and I, let's, let's be real, you and I are described in the Bible as, begins with an S, H, E, yep, sheep. Say it. Say, I'm a sheep. They are wolves. That doesn't go together well, does it? As you, you get the picture? But who is our shepherd? Jesus Christ. Can Jesus handle wolves? And all God's people said, of course he can. He can take every one of them down. But can you and I recognize our shepherd's voice in the din of clanging symbols that's in our society today? All the false teachers. False prophets are self-deceived. Look what Jesus says here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? It's no accident that Jesus' warning here about false prophets immediately follows his teaching about two gates, two ways, two crowds, two destinations. False prophets blur the clarity of the gospel message. They so distort the gospel message that they make it really hard to find the narrow gate, Jesus. They create other gates, good works. Just do more bad, I mean, just do more good than bad before the end of your life, and you'll slip in. You haven't killed anybody, have you? Okay, you don't have to put your hand up. Right? So you're okay. Others try to make out that the narrow way is in reality much broader than Jesus implied. That, that to walk the narrow way requires little, if any, restrictions on your behavior. Some false prophets even dare to contradict Jesus outright, and they assert that the broad road really doesn't lead to destruction. There is no hell. Forget about it. It's all good. We all get there in the end. All roads lead to God. Pick your religion. Pick your God. 
and switch it up when you feel like it. Somehow the broad and narrow road, although they clearly, at least obviously to me, lead off in opposite directions, somehow there's this miracle where they end up at the same point in the end. Liars are responsible for leading people to the very destruction they say doesn't even exist. Do you remember chapter 7, verse 6? You know a dog, you know a pig because of their habits, somewhat dirty habits. They're easy to recognize, but Jesus says not so with wolves because they dress up like us. This doesn't encourage everybody here now to leave and to become, to take part in this game that seems to be played on the internet called heresy hunting, where you're looking for, you tear everybody apart. But it's a solemn reminder that false teachers are here and they're in the church in America and we have to be on our guard because truth matters. Why does truth matter? Because it's God's truth. And it's this truth that will build us up as God's church. And the local church has way more power than it often realizes through the power of the Holy Spirit and through God's Word in our, in our hands in deciding which teachers to listen to and which ones not to listen to. If the church would just heed Jesus' warning and apply His sermon in this one small aspect, it would not be in the perilous state of theological and moral confusion that it is today. In these verses, Jesus confronts us with Himself. He sets before us a radical choice. It is radical. You are going to stand out. To love Jesus means you might be hated by people. It's a choice between obedience and disobedience, if you want to cut to the chase. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, not anybody who verbally says to me, there can be no substitute for obedience, living out what it is you say you believe. As a matter of fact, what we say can sometimes be a camouflage for our disobedience. Wait, I'm saved. Wait, I prayed the prayer. Nothing can touch me now. I said the words. I prayed the prayer. I even got baptized. I even got wet. Not so, says Jesus. Our obedience in living out his words are the proof we've got the disease in the first place. And it's a good disease. Obedience is the fruit. Neutrality is impossible. So are you relying for salvation on some creedal affirmation you made when you were four years old? Are you relying for salvation on what you say to or about Jesus Christ? Now, now, first of all, don't get me wrong here. A verbal profession of Christ is indispensable. All right? In order to be saved, Paul wrote that we have to confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is is our Savior, that He died on the cross and rose again. And that kind of true profession of Jesus Christ as Lord is impossible without the indwelling Holy Spirit. But notice that the kind of Christian profession that Jesus describes here in these verses, it's a polite profession, it's, a, it's orthodox, it's, it's fervent, and it's even public. 
And they say, we even prophesied in your name. We, we, they even dared to claim that as they preached, they did it with the authority and inspiration of Jesus Christ himself. And there are times when they even did the spectacular. There were visible signs and wonders, supernatural ministry, prophecy, exorcisms, miracles. But remember that great signs and wonders are going to be performed by the false Christ and the great false prophet and the Antichrist in the end. You might read this, though, and say, whoa, wait, wait, here are people who call Jesus Lord. What's wrong with that? In itself, nothing. And yet, everything is wrong because Jesus says it's not real. It's talk without truth. It's profession without reality. It will not save you on the day of judgment. So Jesus moves on from what people say to him to what he will say to them. And this is all that really matters. And then I will declare to them, like theirs it's public, but unlike theirs it's true. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Luke's version of this saying adds a very critical element. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? You see, it's this disconnect, um, the vital difference between saying and doing, the, the glaring contrast between worshiping at a service like this together, but then during the week living however we desire. In a moment, we're about to call out to our holy, awesome God and worship Him with our lips. And Jesus is reminding us here to profess that worship Back it up with our obedience. God is convicting us today. He's challenging. He's encouraging different things that we're doing in our lives. For some of us, it's to live this sermon today. For others, it's to, an encouragement to continue to live this sermon today. But live it, we must. Would you rise with me? And let's spend just a moment before we worship with our lips in confession before our awesome God who sees our hearts anyway and lay ourselves bare before Him. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. You alone who are worthy of our worship and our praise. You who have given us Your Word today which cuts to our heart, to what really matters. And God, we're so thankful for our salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray for those who don't know You. People here, in this room today. People we'll come in contact with later in the day, our families, our friends, our neighbors, people at school, people we work with. Lord, we pray for their souls and we pray for you to draw them to yourself and God, use us, your willing servants, to walk this path before them. And we pray it in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen.